I want to say good morning again and uh, welcome to church on this Sunday morning, December the 5th. And the reason I say that is because 20 days from today, we'll be celebrating Christmas. And Christmas for the believer is to be one of the joyous times of the year. And I have a message for you this morning regarding joy. Uh, and I've entitled the message, Joy, a Tale of Two Gardens. I want you to open up your Bibles this morning, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. When you talk about searching for the truth, if you have a leaf Bible, you may be searching for a while, so I'm going to give you a handout here, okay? So if you have a softback ESV, it's on page 767. So I want to give us a little backdrop of where we're at because we're coming in right at the end uh, of this chapter. Habakkuk uh, is one of the minor prophets. Very little is known about him. And these last three verses are what we would call in the theological world a doxology. And a doxology is actually just an expression of praise to God, whether it be in verse or whether it be in song. So if you ever hear of the doxology of Habakkuk, you know uh, that is the last three verses of this chapter. So God has given the prophet Habakkuk a message. And the message is not a very pleasant one. The message is, Habakkuk, I'm going to send the Chaldeans, who we know as the Babylonians, a wicked, vile people. Actually, God refers to this nation in chapter 1, verse 6 of Habakkuk as a bitter and hasty nation. And God's going to use the Chaldeans to administer God's judgment and punishment, wrath upon the nation of Israel for her sin and disobedience. Habakkuk struggles with this like we all would, saying, God, why would you have a nation that's more ungodly than us to judge us? He struggles with that, and there's a dialogue back and forth. And finally, at the end of the chapter, much like we see in the book of Job, Habakkuk comes to the conclusion that God is sovereign, God is in charge of everything, and no matter the consequences of our sin, no matter the circumstances that Habakkuk will find himself in and the nation of Israel will find themselves in, he's going to have joy. If you read the book of Lamentations, you get a better picture of what happened in the city of Jerusalem when the Babylonians came in. It was disastrous. It was not a very happy time in the history of Israel. So before we go into the text, I want us to pray this morning. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we truly thank you for Christmas. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your Son came in flesh as a human. And Lord, he was obedient, the Bible tells us, to death on a cross for our sake. I pray, Father, Lord Jesus, as we... As we listen this morning, I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds. And I pray, Father God, we'd walk away from this building changed. And would walk away with, Lord Jesus, something that we can apply to our lives as believers. And even if there's anyone here this morning, Lord Jesus, in the sound of my voice, that do not know you as their personal Savior, that today would be their day of salvation. Bless this time. Bless the reading of your word. We ask these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. So here in Habakkuk, starting with verse 17. Though the fig trees should not blossom, 
nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fell, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. As you look at the text, it's easy to spot out there are six really negative, disheartening statements that Habakkuk starts out with before we see a positive. And those six are, as you can see, though the fig tree should not blossom, no fruit on the vines, the grapes are gone, no produce of the olive The fields are yielding no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. There will be no herd in the stalls. Devastation, disaster, circumstances surrounding these people will not be good. Then we see the positive, and the positive is joy. We see what he says. He says, yet, even though all these things I know for a fact are going to happen, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation, not in the circumstances that I find myself in. What kind of joy is this? What kind of joy is the joy that you can have in horrible circumstances? This is actually the same kind of joy that martyrs that you read about who were burnt at the stake, who were cut asunder by the sword, who were ravished by wild animals had. And they had the statements as they were dying in regards to the joy that they still possessed. Their circumstances were not happy, yet they still had joy. So the question is, can you, this morning, have joy in the circumstances that you find yourself in? Well, the answer to that, you need to know what joy is. You need to have an understanding of what joy is, and especially Christian joy. I did a Google search on what is joy, came up with over 4 billion results. So there's a whole lot of people who are expressing their ideas of what joy is, and there's a whole lot of people who are desperately seeking joy. We see that in the culture and the society and the world that we live in. There's not a lot of joy. I mean, there's not a lot of happiness in our world today. And with that result, the biggest result I came back in regards to the definition of what joy is, is that joy is an emotion like happiness. Some people would say that joy and happiness are the same thing. They're synonymous. There is, however, I believe, which I will back it up to you this morning, that there is a difference between joy and happiness. The English word happiness that we use comes from the Old Norse, or that is the precursor of the Scandinavian languages, and it means luck or chance. And it's from the root word hap, and that root word hap means luck or chance. Thus, the word happenstance. Happenstance is a compound word that takes two words, happenings and circumstances, and makes one word. 
So happenstance, you've heard the saying, oh, chance meeting you here, or by happenstance, this happened. So happiness, according to the etymology of the word, has a lot to do with luck or chance. So what is being happy, and what is the root cause of happiness? Well, as the word implies, it's by luck or chance. You stop and think about that. Uh, You can be happy right now, and then an hour and a half from now, on the ride home, you can be very unhappy. As an example in regards to how happiness goes, last Saturday, I came up to the church to do something, and... I was in a good mood. I was happy. So I stopped at my favorite coffee shack. I won't disclose the name. I pulled up, and automatically I was kind of like, mm, I don't know about this. There's two, new, two baristas in there that I've never seen. All right? So my happiness level is starting to go down because they may not get my coffee right. My wife says that I'm a pessimist. I refer to myself as a realist. So I get the coffee, and I start going down the road. And have you ever had the, the weeping coffee cup. It's what happens when the hole in the lid, the barista lines it up with the seam in the coffee cup, and then you put your hand on it, it's just weeping out, and it's burning your hand, it's scalding your hand. I'm driving down the road on ice, and I'm trying to drink coffee. Coffee's spilling on my hand. It's dripping on my shirt. I can't do anything about it. I'm not very happy. I kind of lost my happiness very quick over a weeping cup of coffee. So, Happiness relates to your circumstances. If your circumstances are good, you're happy. If your circumstances are not good, you're not happy. And both Christians and non-Christians can experience happiness. If you're a believer today, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross, you've been happy, and there's times you've not been happy. Perhaps you were not happy this morning on your ride into church. Perhaps you were happy. Perhaps you're happier now that you're sitting here and others are elsewhere. That happens. Our circumstances dictate our happiness. However, though, on the other hand, Christian joy is directly related to our relationship with God, not our circumstances. That's kind of hard to wrap our head around because we're so accustomed to have been given the definition of joy, but very... Rarely, and maybe I'm going out on a limb by saying this, but do Christians experience real Christian joy? It's the fake it till you make it kind of crowd. Because if I tell somebody I don't really have Christian joy, then what will they think of me? You see, Christian joy, real Christian joy, allows us to see past what we're going through right now. It helps us to see past the pain, the despair, the agony... And it helps us to focus on a future glory in heaven. For the Christian, joy is the firm confidence that all is well regardless of our circumstances. Let me say that again. For the Christian, joy is the firm confidence that all is well regardless of our circumstances. Christians, you're supposed to have joy. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. That's an imperative. That's a command. Rejoice always. Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, 
I say rejoice. James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. We sing songs about joy. We're actually looking in, with anticipation to December 25th when we celebrate the most joyous occasion for Christians. That's the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet there are many Christians who could give you a definition of joy, but have never really experienced joy, Christian joy. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you've lost joy of your salvation. Maybe you're here, and you've lost the joy in your marriage. And maybe you're here this morning, which I hope is not the case, and you've lost joy in life itself. So the question would be, well, Pete, can a Christian lose their joy? Oh, very much so. Psalms 51.12, David, King David, a man after God's own heart, the Bible tells us, wrote this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, why would David write such a psalm? Well, this, he wrote this after the event in 2 Samuel chapter 11, where David, because of his disobedience, has an affair with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. David tries to cover that up to the point where he has Bathsheba's husband murdered. He then marries Bathsheba thinking, well, all is well. No one's going to know anything about this. Except as you read the last verse, verse 27 of that chapter, the Bible says, But the thing David had done displeased God. For a long time, David carried the angst of lost joy because of his disobedience. It wasn't up until about probably nine months later that the prophet Nathan came up to David and gave him the story. You're familiar with it. This man had a little sheep, a little lamb. This other guy took it. David was infuriated. And the prophet stuck his bony finger in David's face and said, David, you are the man. David repented of his disobedience and his sin. But while before that happened, what did he feel like? Well, he penned Psalms 32, verses 3 through 4. And this is what he said. This is what it's like as a believer if you've lost your joy because of disobedience. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped. As in the heat of summer. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever lost your door to the point where that's the way you feel? I think about Job. You remember Job, the Bible tells us in the book of Job, that Job was blameless. He was righteous before God, upright. There was a heavenly conversation one day that Job had no idea that had taken place. And God said to Satan, he said, have you ever considered my servant Job? He's righteous. He's blameless. And Satan said, oh, yeah, but if you let me get a hold of him, I guarantee he won't be so much. 
So God allows things to come into our life that we have no earthly idea why, God, you would allow this. Suffering, sickness, pain, disaster. And Job, much like Habakkuk, had a back and forth and didn't understand. And at the end of Job, Job realizes. But Job, too, struggled with his loss of joy, not knowing why this was going on. In Job 3.11, he pins this. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Let me ask you a question this morning. Your heart already knows the answer to this. But do you really know what Christian joy is? Have you experienced it? Have you lost it? Are you struggling to try to find that? When's the last time that you had the conscious thought, Man, I have joy. Not happiness, but true Christian joy. I believe there's also times as believers, because I, I, I talk to folks, a person who is truly born again can struggle with the fact that they've lost their joy to the point, am I really born again? I don't have joy that these preachers preach about. I'll watch somebody on TV and they'll be shouting the victory about joy and they'll be inspiring people and they'll be motivating people, giving the definition of joy, even saying which is true, the Bible commands you to have joy. And when is the last time that someone's commanded you to do something you enjoyed doing it? And so Christians struggle because they don't have joy, because we don't understand what joy is. We tend to think that joy is this fuzzy feeling like happiness. But Christian joy is not merely a warm Fuzzy feeling. And Christian joy is not seeking pleasure. Quite the opposite. It's a curious paradox of life that the more that you seek after happiness, the less you find it. Even non-believers know this. The atheist author Eric Hoffer said this, and I think it's so true. The search, the quest for happiness is one of the chief sources of unhappiness. However, Christian joy is produced and takes place through obedience and trust. I'm not talking about obedience in the sense that you're a robot and you're following as much as you can legalistically the law because the Bible tells us we are saved by grace. We're not under the law, we're under grace. But a lot of Christians live in such a state that they are on pins and needles all their life. They walk on earth because they're afraid of making a mistake. That's not joy. This morning, I want to give you four, and there's like a fifth principle regarding Christian joy that I think that as we go through this, it's going to help you even as you read your Bible in later days to see these principles of joy. Before we get going, though, I want to pray one more time before we get into this message. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray, God, now that you'd remove me. I pray, God, you'll speak through me. I pray, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, that hearts will be touched. I know in this room there are hearts that are struggling because they don't have joy. And, Lord, within this room, I know, Heavenly Father, there are people here who don't know you as their personal Savior. I pray, God, that today would be their day of salvation. I pray that the Holy Spirit would work through me. 
Put a protection about our minds this morning. I ask these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. This first principle is that you've got to have a relationship with God. Now, I want to be more specific with that. You have to have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's not just having a relationship with God. There's other religious folks who say, yeah, I have a relationship with God. Me and God have this good thing going, okay? But to have a relationship with God is only through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because we know that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians tells us that. And that the fruit of the Spirit are for believers. Non-believers don't have the fruit of the Spirit. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter in Acts 4, 12, when he was preaching, said this, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The certainty of salvation is the root cause for Christian joy. Luke chapter 10 records Jesus sending out the 72 to go preach and cast out demons and heal people. They come back and they are pumped up. They're rejoicing. They say to Jesus, even the demons obey us through your name. Woo! Shout the glory, right? What does Jesus say? Jesus tells them in verse 17 of that verse, He says, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The second principle, or you could say the second and third principle combined together, is obedience that comes through trust. Obedience to God's word and obedience to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's hard to obey in a God that you do not trust. So what do I mean by that? Well, if I don't really trust God, that God, as Romans says, all things work together for good. If I can't trust that, how can I be obedient to God? Because you can't be obedient to something or someone that you do not trust. You can't be faithful to someone that you do not trust. 1 Samuel 15, 22 reads, Obedience is better than sacrifice. 1 Peter 1, 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't do those things that you used to do before you were a believer. Be obedient to what God's Word says That you're to do. So this morning, if you're struggling in your marriage, why is that? Are you not being obedient to what God's word says? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Live with your wives in an understanding way that your prayers be not hindered. Are you obeying that? Wives, the Bible says you submit to your husband. So why do we have a loss of joy in our marriage? Why do we have loss of joy in our relationships? Why do we have loss of joy? In our salvation is because we fail to be obedient and we fail to trust that God will do what He says that He's going to do. Regarding the trust component to obedience, we talked earlier about Job. Job thirteen fifteen. Job says this, Though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. 
trust that leads to obedience. So I want you to, if you can jot this down, jot this down because this is really important. Disobedient people make excuses for why they can't be obedient. And they blame others and even God himself for their lack of joy. Let me say that again. Disobedient people make excuses for why they can't be obedient. And they blame others for their lack of joy, even blaming God. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. So as we see the progression of these principles, first, I must have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Outside of that, there is no joy. You won't have joy because your home in eternity will be hell where there is no joy. So if I am born again, if I do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, then I need to be obedient to God's Word. I need to trust that God's going to do what He says He's going to do, be obedient to that. Then, that leads to accomplishment. Not accomplishment that I do, but I see accomplishment that Christ, the Holy Spirit's working through me. That's called your sanctification. Sanctification is the effect of being obedient to the Word of God in your life. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So as we are going through these principles, we see accomplishment. We see God working in our life. And what happens is not only does it strengthen us, but it strengthens other people. I know people within this church who are going through some horrible times, but yet you look at them, you see their Facebook post, no matter their circumstances, they're expressing joy in their life, not unhappiness, and it doesn't matter that they're not feeling well, they feel sick, they still have joy because of the next thing. The next thing is, if I follow those steps, that brings contentment which is joy. Paul wrote to a young preacher boy by the name of Timothy. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Philippians 4, 11-13, as Paul's writing in a prison, he writes this in regards to Christian joy, contentment. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances I know what is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. He writes, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. So recapping these principles, one, I've got to have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, I need to be obedient to God's Word and trust God in God's Word, which then leads to godly accomplishment in my life, my sanctification, my growing, my maturing as a believer, which leads to contentment. No matter my lot in life, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well 
with my soul. To illustrate this morning this principle, I want to take you through a, to a walk, a virtual walk. We're not leaving the building, but I want in your mind to conjure up the pictures and the feelings. I'm going to take you to two gardens this morning. The first garden that we'll go to, we walk in, and it seems evident that there's joy in this place. The sun is shining. The, the sky is the most beautiful blue that you've ever seen. And you walk into this garden, and you have the beautiful sound of songbirds singing in the garden, and you just feel a sense of joy. You feel the, the warmth of the sun on your skin, and you say, wow, surely this place is just full of joy. And I'm speaking about the Garden of Eden. It was a paradise. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. He put the man there to guard it and keep it. He had a task. He was to be obedient and trust in God that this is what you want me to do. God also gave Adam a commandment to not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His wife Eve knew of this as well. And in this paradise, how, how much paradise was it? Well, it was paradise in the sense that you could think of it. In Genesis 1, 31, it says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Nothing bad, a place full of joy. John Milton, in his epic poem, Paradise Lost, as he's contemplating and having the reader contemplate what did it look like when Adam and Eve was in the garden and Jesus sitting there looking down upon them, he wrote this. On earth, he first beheld our two first parents. Yet the only two of mankind in the happy garden placed, reaping immortal fruits of joy and love, uninterrupted joy, unrivaled love and blissful Solitude. For a time, Adam and Eve were in God's garden experiencing joy. They walked with Him. They communed with Him. They had a relationship with Him. But then in that joyful garden, something happened. Genesis 3 gives that devastating account. These image bearers, these children of God who had a relationship with the Creator, God Almighty became disobedient to God's Word. No repentance is seen in that chapter from Adam and Eve. So tempted to disobey God's commandment, to reject His commandment, Eve, when she had trusted the serpent more than she trusted God's command, and when she had convinced herself that she was right, the serpent was right, and God was wrong, she took the fruit she ate of and she gave to her husband. So now this paradise is lost. What do we see? When, when a believer does not continue to act in obedience to God's word and trust, obedience to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life, your joy is going to be replaced with fear, anxiety, shame, and then blame. Remember I said disobedient people? will make every excuse for why they're not obedient, put the blame on everybody else, including God, for their 
loss of joy. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. What did Adam say? The woman that you made me. Then what did Eve say? The serpent that you made. So we see that. Not taking, not, not stopping down. We, we wonder, why didn't Adam and Eve just stop right there and say, Oh God, forgive us, we were disobedient. Instead, they hid themselves. They tried to cover it up. Fig leaves. Romans chapter 5 verse 9 gives us a really good explanation of what happened in the garden and how joy was lost. Not only joy was lost, but hope was lost for all mankind. Romans 5 9 says this, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So now paradise is lost. Joy and hope is lost. Can joy that has been lost, can it be regained? Well, the rest of Romans chapter 5 verse 9 gives us a resounding yes and something to rejoice in. So we see the rest of Romans 5 9 says this. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We know that the disobedient man is Adam. Who is the obedient man? And what is this act of obedience that's going to restore joy? Well, we know that it's Jesus. Let me take you to another garden. This garden, you walk in and it's, it's dark. The moon is shining, but there's no warmth from the moon. You walk in, it's chilly. And just there's an eerie feeling in this whole garden. Something just doesn't seem right in this garden. As you walk further into the garden, there's this eerie silence, and then the eerie silence gives way to sounds of a man's voice. It seems like he's pleading with someone, but within the pleading, there's a sense of deep agony and, and suffering and despair. And you stop. Say, man, there is no joy in this garden. And yes, this is the Garden Gethsemane. This is the place where Jesus prayed. And if you remember... In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it explains what Jesus did when he's in the garden. As his disciples are sleeping, the Bible says that Jesus is agonizing in pain. And he's asking his father, Lord, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. To the point that the Gospels tells us that he was sweating drops of blood. Not a lot of joy in that moment. But there was joy that comes out of that garden. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne 
of God. Great joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory comes out of a garden if you first walk in. There's no joy here. So what was this act that Christ did? He was obedient. And the Bible tells he was obedient unto death of a cross. He took the cross for me and for you. He died for things he did not do. He died for things that I did. He died for things that you did. Isaiah tells us that it pleased God to crush him for our sake. I want us to look at one more place before we go into our time of communion. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. And this morning, maybe you, do, maybe you don't have joy. And is it because that you're not being obedient, you're not trusting God? How's the, how's the joy in your marriage? How's the joy in your relationships? How's the joy of your salvation? Here is Peter writing from a jail cell in Rome to believers in Philippi who are also being persecuted, also struggling like you and I with joy. How come I don't have it? Am I truly born again? I don't have joy. What is it? What do I need to do to have joy in my life? We're going to see what, Pete, what Paul writes right here. And as we read through this, I want you to look and look at the principles. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Obedience and trust that God knows what he's doing, which leads to accomplishment. God working in your life, in the lives of others. And then contentment, which is joy. To say, whatever my lot in life is, I have joy. Starting in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth... Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So this morning, my challenge to you, if you're here this morning and you, don't, you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, God's Son, you'll never have joy till that happens. Believer, if you're not being obedient to God's Word, if you're not being obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life, your joy is going to get lost. Some people say, well, a Christian's joy is stifled. But you know what? Stifled joy to me is no joy at all. So what are you going to do this morning? Are you in a situation in your marriage where you don't have joy? Are you in a situation that you've lost the joy of your salvation? Are you in a situation where you've lost the joy of even living? 
Come to me, all ye that are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Joy unspeakable and full of glory.